Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And as always, we have a lot to talk about today, uh, including going in-depth on the readings for the octave of Easter. But first, um, a few weeks ago, I ran out of time answering uh, some questions and correcting some misconceptions Uh, from an email uh, that I encountered, and um, I said I would finish up the next week, neglecting to remember that it was going to be Holy Week. And so I invoked my hostly prerogative to kick it down the road to the next week, only to kick it down the road again uh, last week to this week. So to refresh your memory, my uh, my email interlocutor, whose initials are SS, began uh, his email by saying, I'm listening to your CDs on Gabriel Amorth, and you said something that's very wrong. You said Protestant churches, which is, in fact, cults. So, okay, first off, the CDs he's referring to are an audiobook that I recorded for Ignatius Press. So his beef is really with uh, the author, with Father Amorth, and not with me. Uh, And as I pointed out a couple weeks ago, it's true that Christian bodies that do not enjoy the apostolic succession are not um, properly called... um, particular churches, but they are ecclesial communities. However, the word church remains in common usage, right? So, for example, Baptist church, Lutheran church, Presbyterian church, and that's uh, especially true if you're talking about the church building, right? Um, St. John's on Main Street is a Lutheran church, okay? First Baptist church is across town, uh, and so on. And, of course, it is an abuse of the term to call Protestants cults, or Protestant communities cults. And yet he admonished me, stop calling Protestants Christians. Only Jesus can found a church, not sinful men or women. And, of course, he's correct that Jesus founded the one true church. But, needless to say, I pointed out that uh, you know people who have been validly baptized are, in fact, Christians. And that's why the Catholic Church does not re-baptize Protestant converts and, and never has, because the Church has always recognized that they are, in fact, Christians. And so you can go back and listen to the, uh, the program from March 28th if you missed it. But near the end of his email, SS recommended that I, quote, please watch the latest excellent video from Queen of Peace Media about the soon-to-come warning or illumination of conscience by Christine Watkins, and he outed himself as a devotee of the alleged apparitions at Garabandal. Now, I've been hearing about the the so-called illumination of conscience, or great warning, and the three days of darkness and all that, ever since I've become Catholic. And according to the alleged apparition of Our Lady at Garabandal, Spain, the great warning, a.k.a. the illumination of conscience, will take place shortly before the end times, Uh, And everyone, without exception, will personally experience an awareness of our own sins. Each person will be, um, according to this apparition, alone before God in what amounts to a kind of wake-up call for every human being before the last judgment. Uh, The three days of darkness, on the other hand, is not uh, unique to Garabandal. It's been around since the Middle Ages, and it's been uh, variously attributed to uh, different medieval saints and mystics, and you're free to debate about that all you want, independently of, of Garabandal. Now, I never paid much attention to the, the whole great warning thing. I mean, even when the oil was still wet on my forehead, I could tell that was nonsense. Because first of all, Catholics should already be aware of our sinfulness. You should be making an examination of conscience every day. 
Catholics should already be living in a state of grace, like uh, Terry and Jesse say on their program all the time. Catholics should already be striving to um, remedy our faults, to grow in holiness by, uh, you know, receiving the sacraments, to cooperating with God's grace. And further, since Garabandal is is a private revelation, I'm under no obligation to have any faith in it, even if it were approved, which in fact it is not. Uh, and, and it's not proper to say the Church hasn't spoken about it either. We'll get to that in a minute. In any case, the so-called illumination of conscience or final warning is not only not a, depart, a part of the deposit of faith, but seems to me to directly contradict the very words of our blessed Lord, who said explicitly that when he does come, it will be quite unexpected in his words, like a thief in the night. And therefore, we must uh, practice vigilance. We need to be um, you know, vigilant precisely because there will not be any advanced warning, such as the so-called illumination of conscience. Remember how Jesus said at the last judgment, those on his left will self-righteously ask, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked, etc.? It hardly sounds like they experienced any unique illumination of conscience. Now, I mentioned the other week that vigilant is an important virtue, and it's and it's kind of extra special to me because the chivalric motto on the Arnold family crest is vivas et vigilis, that is, watch that you may live. It's not noli anxietas ex exitare vocatio, which is don't worry, there's going to be a wake-up call. And further, around the turn of the century, I was given a copy of the official Garabandal magazine, uh, by a person every bit as misguided and adamant as SS. And the cover article asserted that the great warning was uh, imminent and declared, per the alleged visionaries, that John Paul II would be the last pope. As a matter, as a matter of fact, I think it said the last pope was the, uh, the masthead on the cover. Now, obviously, St. John Paul has long since gone to his reward and uh, still no illumination of conscience. In fact, the conscience of those who follow Garabandal should have been illuminated when the prophecy was proven false. And that's no nonsense. Now, I've got nothing against uh, private revelations per se, you know, private revelations in general or Marian apparitions in particular. I'm just allergic to nonsense. Uh, and full disclosure, I've spent the last 15 years uh, traveling around the world promoting devotion to Our Lady under the title Our Lady of Good Success. Now, that's a private apparition. But it's an approved one. You know, I likewise, you know, I did my best this last week to, or at the beginning of this week, to fulfill um, all the requirements for the Divine Mercy Sunday indulgence, okay? Uh, and that comes from a private revelation to St. Faustina. The point is, again, it's a, a revelation that's been approved. And, and just last week, a, a listener emailed to ask if the Divine Mercy was legitimate because some fellow parishioner uh, who is, you know, was they considered knowledgeable and, and well-versed in the traditional Latin mass and that sort of thing, had said that it wasn't. And further, the emailer said, quote, to be honest, I was personally concerned this devotion made salvation too easy. See, I didn't even think to address this when I talked about divine mercy last week, but is divine mercy legitimate? Well, the short answer is yes. However, there has been debate in traditionalist circles about the legitimacy of the divine mercy chaplet slash devotion uh, for a long time, with some traditionalists taking one side and some the other. And you notice I do not say traditional Catholics, but traditionalists, right? The debate stems from the issue that St. Faustina's diary was not originally accepted as of supernatural origin by the Holy Office. 
but only later rehabilitated, and, you know, after Vatican II, no less, on the grounds that a faulty Italian translation of the original Polish misrepresented the contents of her diary. And the Divine Mercy was promoted by Pope St. John Paul II himself, who would be in a unique position to distinguish between the Polish original and the faulty translation, as he was fluent in both Polish and Italian. Uh, Consequently, he made Sister Faustina a saint. Uh, He personally established the octave of Easter as Divine Mercy Sunday in accord with the request that our Lord uh, made to St. Faustina, as she recorded in her diary. Uh, The priestly order of the Marians of the Immaculate Conception are the official custodians of St. Faustina's diary and promoters of the Divine Mercy Chaplet slash Devotion slash Mercy Sunday. Now, I point this out because when our listener's friend calls the Divine Mercy into question, what she's really calling into question is the legitimacy of Pope St. John Paul II. And I know that some traditionalists do not accept the post-conciliar popes as legitimate, but I would hope that none of our listeners are among them or that if they are, they will soon be converted. Now, a word about Divine Mercy Sunday. You know, the the person that emailed was concerned that devotion made salvation too easy. And I just want to point out that what's offered by the Divine Mercy Sunday uh, devotion is not remission of sins, much less salvation. Rather, it is precisely a plenary indulgence. And we know indulgences are acts under certain conditions, which I set out last week, Remit the temporal punishment due for sins that have already been absolved. Some of the punishment as a partial indulgence or all of the punishment as a plenary indulgence under certain conditions, right? Uh, It's that indulgence act takes the place of other penance that would be done either here on earth or suffered in purgatory. Now, you can gain a plenary indulgence under the usual conditions for saying the rosary with your family tonight, right? And the effects would be identical with the Divine Mercy Sunday indulgence. And what what seemingly sets the Divine Mercy Sunday devotion apart, um, and again, I say seem because I'm not an expert, but uh, it seems that the usual condition of complete detachment from even venial sin, which I explained in the last program, is reduced to a spirit of complete detachment. In other words, a, a genuine desire for complete detachment. And this is according to the wording of the document, at least the English translation of the document, that established the Divine Mercy. But... Uh, the, the point being, <clears throat> in both of these cases, it's about approval. You know, if a, if a private apparition or a, you know revelation has not been, if the church hasn't spoken, the, the the laity are free to accept it or or not. You know, so long as it's you know they can accept it, so long as there's nothing about it that uh, is offensive to face or morals. But if the church concludes that an apparition is false, as it has in the case of Garabendal of all the bishops back to 1961 and the the Holy See in 1969, okay, um, then the faithful should be not only ready but willing to abandon it. But once the Church has declared an apparition as worthy of belief, then the faithful must respect the Church's decision. You have to respect the authority of the Church and likewise respect those who choose to make that devotion a part of their uh, spiritual life. And that my dear friend, is no nonsense. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about the readings for the octave of Easter and uh, the different names of the octave of Easter, why the Bible tells us so often not to worry, and more. So all that when we're coming back right after this.
Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm uh, going to talk about the readings for the Octave of Easter, which is also known as Dominica in Alba, also known as Low Sunday, also known as Quasimodo Sunday, and also known today as Divine Mercy Sunday. And this is the uh, the readings from the extraordinary form of the Mass for uh, the Octave, and the first reading taken from the Epistle of John, first Epistle of John, uh, chapter 5, verses 4 through 10. Dearly beloved, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory which overcometh the world, our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit which testifieth that Christ is the truth. And there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that give testimony on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are one. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God which is greater, because he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth in the Son of God hath the testimony of God in himself." So St. John is telling us that by faith in Jesus as the Son of God, we can overcome the world, because that faith shows us in God the Father the world to come, our true country. Faith in Christ inspires us to love God above all things, to disregard the world and and worldly goods, and to strive for the eternal. St. John shows us that Jesus is the Son of God, firstly by the threefold testimony on earth of the water, at his baptism in the Jordan, of the blood at his death on the cross, and of the Spirit and the miraculous effects uh, on those who believed in him. And second, by the threefold testimony from heaven, that of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And lastly, we see in the water, the Spirit and the blood, the sacraments of initiation received by the catechumens at Easter Vigil, baptism, confirmation, and First Holy Communion. And you'll notice that I'm reading from the traditional Dewey Reams translation. And if you've been listening to the, the program over the last couple of years, you're, I'm sure you're aware, I've become partial to using the New Catholic Bible translation, largely because the modern English is you know, a little easier to comprehend. And in many cases, it's quite close to the New American uh, Bible translation that most U.S. Catholics are familiar with. But it, it is more formal, and it does not have the inclusive language that, you know, kind of uh, does violence to the text in the, in the NAB. But I read today from the Dewey, Dewey Reams because of, specifically because of one verse, 1 John 5, 7. And there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. This uh, verse does not appear in modern English translations. And why is that? Well, because of the claim that this verse does not appear in the oldest of the Greek manuscripts. Now, um, I would point out that that's the the same with the the longer ending of Mark, and yet that's always included, uh, with or without the the caveat, the longer ending. But I digress. Uh, You know, speaking of ancient Greek manuscripts, uh, as a traditional Catholic, I'd be quick to point out that St. Jerome made his definitive Latin translation. When he did that, he had ancient Greek texts, texts, uh, presumably even older, and which are no longer extant. They don't, even, they don't exist anymore. 
And, uh, and I would mention what Father, uh, not Father, Dr. Peter Kuznevsky wrote on Facebook last year. He said, whatever you may think about the status of this verse from a paleographical standpoint, I mean, whether, how ancient it is, he says it was read for over a millennium on Low Sunday, where it remains to this day in the extraordinary form. Also, it's well to remember that the Latin Vulgate is the only translation of the Holy Scriptures that's been dogmatically declared to be free from error. That's according to the, uh, the Council of Trent. And Dr. Kosnevsky wrote about this verse uh, because after Traditionis Custodes, some of the bishops have required that uh, readings at the traditional Latin Mass be done in the vernacular and according to the official modern liturgical translations. Well, in the United States, that would be the lectionary based on the New American Bible. And as Dr. K points out, 1 John 5, 7 is nowhere to be found in the Novus Ordo lectionary. And, and we've talked about this in, in regard to other verses on this program. It's not the only example. Uh, and so he says there's no way to substitute the vernacular reading for the Latin reading because, you know, there's part of it's missing. Uh, same with the prayers about Our Lady uh, that, uh, um, you know, quote the, the uh, mother of fair love. That's, that's not in the new translations either for, for whatever reason. Now, this, of course, this is why I'm reading from the, the traditional translation today. And I... I have often said, if I could only have one English translation of the Bible, it would be the Douay. Uh, however, I, I can and do appreciate modern translations. And I certainly prefer the, the New Catholic Bible over the New American Bible in most cases, but not all. Which just goes to show you that there is no perfect translation. And, you know, it's one of the great benefits of living in the digital age that you can easily call up multiple Bible translations on your computer or your smartphone, including the original Hebrew and Greek, if you're so inclined. And and that's not all. I mean, today you can instantly access the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Baltimore Catechism, the Penny Catechism, uh, the Catechism of St. Pius X, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, a.k.a. the Roman Catechism, the Catechetical Instructions of St. Thomas Aquinas, and on and on and on, all in English and all for free. So there really aren't any excuses to be unfamiliar with what the church actually teaches. Uh, now the Holy Gospel for Low Sunday, according to St. John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. At that time, when it was late in the day, the first of the week, and the doors were shut, where the disciples were gathered together for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples therefore were glad when they saw the Lord. He said therefore to them again, Peace be to you. As the Father hath sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained." Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were with him, and Thomas was with them. Jesus cometh, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be to you. 
Then he saith to Thomas, Put in thy finger hither, and see my hands, and bring hither thy hand, and put it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith to him, Because thou hast seen me, Thomas, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. Many other signs also Jesus did in the sight of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, this gospel um, raises a number of questions, and it's precisely in asking questions of the text that we read the Bible, uh, I would, might say existentially, that is, that, that we can apply what we read to our own lives. <clears throat> For example, why didn't Thomas believe the appearance of Christ to the other disciples? And, and why did God allow his disbelief? And, and what does it mean to believe in God? And What must we believe and why must we believe it? Uh, how can we know for sure what God has or has not revealed? And, and which is the one true faith? I mean, that's a load of questions just from this one short passage. So let's dive in. Why didn't St. Thomas believe that Jesus appeared to the other apostles, earning him the sobriquet, Doubting Thomas? Well, if you notice, the scripture says that he was called Didymus, which means twin. So it's to be expected that a fellow with a twin brother probably dealt with situations of mistaken identity his whole life. Of all the disciples, he was the mo had the most reason to think that they only saw someone they thought was Jesus. Hence his condition, except I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Of course, uh, on Low Sunday, right, which we just celebrated, Christ appeared again and took away all doubt from Thomas. And I believe that God allowed Thomas's disbelief so that we might be strengthened in our faith. Just like he said, Because thou hast seen me, Thomas, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. That's why Pope St. Gregory the Great said that this episode only makes the resurrection of, resurrection of Christ that much more credible and certain for us. The Church teaches that um, to believe in God means to receive as absolutely certain whatever God has revealed to us. Right? The Greek word for believe means to trust. And, and that's, that's true even if what's been revealed is beyond our comprehension, right? even if we can't understand it. And for a Catholic, to believe in God means to believe all that God has revealed, precisely because God, the infallible truth, has revealed it. And that belief is both reasonable and necessary for salvation. So the question is, how can we know for certain what God has or has not revealed, and what constitutes the one true faith? Well, the answer, of course, is, is through the Church, which is guided by the Holy Spirit to all truth, and which, in which Jesus Christ dwells till the end of time. Hence the act of faith. O oh my God, I firmly believe that your divine Son became man and died for our sins, and that he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe these truths, and all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches, because thou hast revealed them, who art eternal truth and wisdom, and can neither deceive nor be deceived. And in this faith I intend to live and to die. Amen. If you can make the act of faith and mean it, well, congratulations, you're a traditional Catholic, and no matter which Mass you decide to attend.
But how do we know that the Catholic Church is the Church of Christ? Because the truth, like the truth, she is one, holy, Catholic, Catholic, and apostolic. The Roman Catholic Church alone possesses all the marks of the true Church, because she alone has preserved unity in faith and the holy sacraments and the visible head, the Pope. She alone can trace her descent from the apostles to the present day, and she can demonstrate this origin by her doctrine as well as by the succession of the popes and bishops. She alone has all the means of salvation. She alone has produced an army of saints. And finally, she alone embraces all ages, which is why it's nonsense to talk about the pre-Vatican II Church and the post-Vatican II Church. It, it must be the same Church now and forever, which, as St. Augustine says, shines from one end of the world to the other in the splendor of one and the same faith, inviting all to her bosom to bring them to Jesus. All right, I'm going to continue with this and uh, talk about the, the reasons why we shouldn't worry and more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after these messages. Welcome back. We've been answering some questions raised by the Gospel for Low Sunday, and we're talking about how we can know uh, the Catholic Church, the true Church of Christ, uh, and so on. And St. Peter says in his first epistle, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for your hope, but do it with gentleness and reverence. And I'm all for Catholic apologetics. But if somebody asks a Catholic why you know we believe in the priesthood or purgatory or whatever, a Catholic can simply say, I believe these and, and like matters of faith because God, who is the truth, has revealed them. And uh, he, because he has revealed them, you know, I believe he's revealed them because the Roman Catholic Church, which teaches them to me, uh, has all the marks of the true church, guided by God and cannot therefore deceive me. You know, I... In other words, because the church says so is actually a legitimate answer. Now, a final question here. Is it sufficient for salvation to have the true faith and to belong to the true church? No. Right? That goes, that's, it goes back to the, our email we were talking about in the first segment. When the lady says, it seems like it makes salvation too easy. No. Belonging to the true church doesn't guarantee your salvation. You, because you have to live according to the faith. You have to observe uh, what the faith commands and, and avoid what it forbids, which is why you should, you know, uh, daily make an act of faith. Okay, and that's no nonsense. Uh, one other thing deserves mention from the Gospel for Low Sunday, uh, and that's how our Lord breathed on the apostles and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive, they shall be forgiven them. This is the institution of the sacrament of penance, right? And, and it's kind of, it, it sort of bookends the, the passion, death, and resurrection, right? At the Last Supper, he gives them the power to uh, confect the Eucharist, right? Do this in memory of me. And then now, after the resurrection, he says, you know, forgive sins in my name and gives them the power. Uh, Jesus established the church precisely to continue his earthly ministry until, you know, such time as he shall come again. And that, of course, must include the forgiveness of sins. 
Hence, he gave the apostles and their successors the power to forgive sins in his name. <clears throat> you know, sometimes I encounter people, even Catholics, who, who seem to think that God is some kind of monster, right? That God is just waiting for them to, to commit some sin so that he can, you know, thrust them into hell. And nothing, of course, can be further from the truth. God wants you to spend eternity with him, right? That's, that's the greatest verse. He gave his only begotten son. Because he so loved the, the, the world, he gave his only begotten son so that those who believe in him, right, can have eternal life. He wants to forgive your sins more than you want them to be forgiven. And he will forgive your sins if you'll only let him in the sacrament of penance. And we, we just mentioned the act of faith. Every morning, right, uh, before I make my morning or after I make my morning offering, I pray acts of faith, hope, love, and contrition. And I want to talk about that for just a minute. Um, I suppose that you know the story of Faust. Um, it's the famous play by Goethe about a man, uh, an astrologer or a necromancer who sells his soul to the devil in exchange for knowledge and power. Well, at the climax of the play, the devil you know, drags him down to hell. Okay, uh, And that's the end of poor Faust. Now, typically, the, the actor playing the demon Mephistopheles will grab the actor playing Faust and, and they jump through a trapdoor in a puff of smoke. Right, to affect the, uh, the appearance of him being taken to hell. Well, once upon a time, in a production of, of Faust in Breslau, Germany, you know, Mephistopheles grabs Faust and he's jumping down to hell and the trapdoor stuck with him halfway through. So here's the poor devil stuck in the trapdoor and, and the audience going wild with laughter and applause because for the first time ever, Faust managed to cheat the devil. All right? <laughs> uh, the thing is that we're all hoping to keep the doors of hell shut, uh, at least for us. And that's what the act of contrition is about. And that's what perfect contrition is about. Because, you know, there's more than one kind of contrition. But the, the act of perfect contrition is a prayer in which we tell God we're sorry for our sins, primarily because uh, we have offended him who is so good. Right? The point is, if you find yourself in a position where you cannot go to confession, you can make the act of perfect contrition. In fact, anytime you become aware of having committed a mortal sin, you should do it right away. Because you know from your catechism that God hears you when you pray, and he will forgive your sins even before you go to confession, but you must intend to confess your sins at when you have the chance. And I mentioned this, you know, uh, I mentioned that I say the act of contrition in the morning uh, before I say my other prayers. But an examination of conscience and an act of contrition is also the traditional way to uh, begin uh, the night prayer, Compline, in the Liturgy of the Hours. Start by making a, an examination of conscience, an act of contrition, and then you pray the hours. And it's a good custom, with, you know, whether you pray the hours or not, to do that um, you know, be, be before you go to bed at night. And you know, just, the, just the same... Act of contrition that you pray in confession. Oh my God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee. So you notice we start off by saying we're sorry, right? And then follow the reasons why we're sorry. I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, right? That's imperfect contrition, by the way, which is sufficient uh, for the sacrament of penance. But most of all, because I've offended thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love. See, that's the act of perfect contrition. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to confess my sins, right? There's the intention to go to confession when you can, to do penance and to amend my life. Amen. 
because do penance because your confession isn't complete until you have completed the penance that the priest gives you and and to have a firm purpose of amendment that we're going to try our best to keep from falling back into sin. All right, so so there it is. Now, in the Gospel for Low Sunday, Jesus uh, three times says to the apostles, peace be with you. You know, th- the last time Jesus had been gathered with his apostles before the Passion, he told them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Be not afraid. That's John fourteen twenty seven. Now, after the resurrection, he says again, peace be to you. So because the end result of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is a deep and lasting peace, and unlike worldly peace, which is usually defined as the absence of conflict, this peace is a confident assurance and confidence uh, in any circumstance, fear, sin, uncertainty, doubt, you know, whatever's going on in the, in the church or the world, all these numerous forces that are at war with us and within us, with Christ's peace, we have no need to fear the present or the future. It's independent of what's going on in the world, the peace of Christ, because it comes into our hearts and lives to restrain those hostile forces and to offer comfort in their place. Jesus tells us he will give peace not as the world gives, and he will give us that peace if we're willing to accept it from him. So if your life is full of stress, you ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with Christ's peace. And with that in mind, I would like to share seven biblical reasons not to worry, and they're taken from our Lord's Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 6. Everyone knows that worry is bad for you. Undue anxiety can damage your health. It can adversely affect your productivity. It can affect the way you treat others. Uh, it can hamper your ability to trust in God. Now, you know, does any of that sound familiar? Because of the many bad effects of worry and anxiety, Jesus tells us specifically not to worry about those common needs that fall under the providence of God. There is such a thing, pardon me, as genuine concern. But the difference between worry or anxiety and genuine concern is that worry immobilizes, uh, anxiety paralyzes, whereas concern inspires you to take action. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, uh, the evangelist recounts that the famous Sermon on the Mount, which includes, among other things, the Lord's Prayer and the Beatitudes, and the following seven biblical reasons not to worry. First, the same God that created your immortal soul can be trusted with the details of your, or I should say, the, the God who created your immortal soul can be trusted with the details of your mortal life. Matthew 6.25, Therefore heed my words. Do not be concerned about your life and what you will have to eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Surely life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Uh, Worrying about the future hampers your efforts for today. As he says in verse 26, Gaze upon the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap or store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of greater value than they? Number three, worrying is more harmful than it is helpful. And in verse 27, Jesus says, Can any of you, through worrying, 
at a single moment to your life. Right, worrying doesn't accomplish anything. Number four, God is provident. He, he keeps his promises and he carries out his threats, and he does not ignore those who depend on him. Verses 28 through 30. Why are you concerned about what you are to wear? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither labor nor spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his royal splendor was clothed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field which grows today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not all the more clothe you, O you of little faith? Number five, worrying betrays a lack of faith in God and a lack of understanding of God. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 31 and 32, Therefore, stop being anxious about such things. Do not say, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? These are things that are of concern to the Gentiles. Your heavenly Father is fully aware of your needs. Number six, worrying keeps us from the real challenges that God wants us to pursue. Verse 33, very famous, Rather, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. And then finally, number seven, Living one day at a time keeps us from being consumed with worry. And this is Matthew 6, 34. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has troubles enough of its own. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we return, going to finish up with this and uh, talk about uh, uh, some other things, especially we're going to return to uh, uh, a little discussion about divine mercy and uh, what it means for us. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Talking about... um, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, we just read that, a justly famous passage of Scripture. And, and because it speaks directly to God's will for us. And you note that Jesus is listing real human needs, you know, uh, same in the 21st century as in the first century. You know, but then as now, he warns us against making these genuine human needs the object of anxiety. Because then we become enslaved by them. You know, this slavery to anxiety is real and, and, and even more real in present danger today probably than it was in New Testament times. Your health, your, your productivity, your relationships with your friends and family, most especially your relationship with God, all these things can be damaged or distorted by worry. And the remedy for that attitude, you know, which is God's will for, for us, is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And, and what does it mean? Okay, what does it mean to, um, you know, seek first the kingdom of God? Or in other words, to, to make the kingdom of God your primary concern. What it means is putting God first in your life. It, it's the imitation of Christ to, to fill your thoughts with his will, to take his character as your pattern, to, to serve and obey him in everything. After all, what's really important to you? Your relationships, your stuff, your goals, and all, all these other desires compete for priority. And any of these can quite frankly, and I dare say seemingly without warning, bump God out of first place unless you actively choose to give him first place in every area of your life. 
You know, I've often spoken about what it means to be in the kingdom, that it goes beyond baptism because it's possible to be in the church and not be in the kingdom, right? And, and I'll give you the proof right now. Being in, because it's being in the kingdom is about being in the state of grace. It's about having the Spirit of God, really the, the, the blessed Trinity, dwelling within you. That is to say, you know, being in the kingdom is about being holy. And to seek his righteousness is to continue to grow in holiness, which in turn gives you ever greater confidence in God's providence. And so there's, there's clearly lots of folks in, in the church that are not in a state of grace. Uh, but, you know, when I say that, that um, you know, that you, you turn to God in everything and, and seek his righteousness, his providence, trust his providence, that doesn't mean to fall into fatalism. Right, you know, case sera, sera, whatever, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You know, planning for tomorrow is time well spent. Worrying about tomorrow is time wasted. And admittedly, it, it's sometimes difficult to tell the difference. But don't worry about it. See, careful planning is thinking ahead and trusting in God's guidance. So done well, planning can help alleviate your anxiety. I, I remember you know, more than once in my life where you, where you have almost like an anxiety attack when I'm feeling overwhelmed by the circumstances in my life. And, and you know, the, one of the best ways to combat that is take a deep breath, make a list. You know, it's got all these things to do. Well, go after them one by one. Uh, as Terry Barber is fond of saying, by the inch, it's a cinch. By the yard, it's hard. So you, you know, take things one, one step at a time. And trust in God. You know, um, Worriers, you know, are consumed by fear and find it. And, you know, when that happens, when you become anxious, it becomes difficult, more and more difficult to trust in God. And it's all too possible to let your plans interfere with your relationship with God, right? To let your plans supersede his plans. You just remember what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So don't let worries about tomorrow affect your relationship with God today. And there is a, a popular prayer that, yeah, you mostly see this on wall plaques and, and coffee cups. I don't know its origin, but I think it applies. Lord, help me to remember that there's nothing, that nothing is going to happen to me today that you and I together cannot handle. And that's no nonsense. All right. Last but not least, last year uh, in our parish bulletin, I read an article from a syndicated column, a bulletin column, that is somewhat laughably called Treasures of Our Tradition. And it was about the octave of Easter. And it said that an ancient title for Easter uh, was, or not the octave, was Dominica in Alba, which is to say Alba Sunday or White Sunday, Sunday in white. Uh, the reason being that the newly baptized were invested in, with a white garment at Easter that they wore for a full week of celebration until the Sunday after Easter. Okay, so far so good. The catechumens used to wear their baptismal garment for a week and take it off on the octave. But then the article claims, in later centuries, the energy of new life at Easter was largely forgotten, and this Sunday was renamed Quasimodo Sunday, or Low Sunday, and goes on to say that it's only in recent years that we have rediscovered that Easter is a privileged time for celebrating and renewing baptism. Quote, there's nothing low about this Sunday, unquote. And, um, you know, I, I just mentioned that, that we live in an age 
when access to information is greater than any time in history. So frankly, there is no excuse for this kind of condescending nonsense, uh, especially to be distributed in a Catholic bulletin. Two minutes of research could have cleared this guy's head. Where to begin? For one thing, the feast was not renamed. In the extraordinary form, the official name for the is the Octave of Easter. Uh, my missile identifies it uh, as Dominica and Alba or Low Sunday. But those names, Dominica and Alba, Low Sunday, Quasimodo Sunday, they're all popular conventions. Now, it's true that in earlier times, those who had been baptized on Holy Saturday lay aside their white garments on Low Sunday. But there's more to it than that. Why it was called Sunday in white. Uh, and you might think a, a column called Treasures of Our Tradition might mention that Dominica and Alba, after they would remove their baptismal garments, the newly baptized, uh, received an Agnus Dei. It was placed around their necks. An Agnus Dei, it was a, a round, uh, like a pendant made of white wax that had been blessed by the Pope and uh, impressed with the familiar image of the, the Lamb of God holding a banner. And it was to remind them continually that they were bound to preserve their baptismal innocence. Uh, so the Church therefore sings at the intro of the Mass, quasi modo geniti, as newborn babes, alleluia, desire the rational milk without guile, alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. All right, so quasi modo geniti, hence quasi modo Sunday. The next verse is rejoice to God our helper, sing aloud to the God of Jacob. All right, the word rejoice is, is laud or, or praise. Hence, it became popularly known in England and Anglophone countries as Laud Sunday. So, and then dropping the D over sound uh, over time, it morphed from Laud Sunday to Low Sunday, kind of like the way All Hallows Eve uh, became contracted to the single word Halloween. Right? You, you got to love English, uh, and and of course, this doesn't apply to non-Anglophone countries. So the treasures of our tradition, this is only traditions that apply to people that speak English. All right, the church is a little, little wider than that. Uh, and then despite what this article suggests, Catholics never considered anything about the octave of Easter to be low, quote-unquote. Dom Prosper Garanger, the great liturgist and uh, <clears throat> the author of that classic multi-volume work, The Liturgical Year, had this to say about the octave of Easter. He said, Such is the solemnity of Low Sunday, that not only is it of a double right, but no feast, however great, can ever be kept upon it. Now, what does that mean? Since Easter is a movable feast, uh, and it's always celebrated on a Sunday, so it's a different uh, calendar day each year, right? But Because it's always on Sunday. So Easter, or the octave of Easter, was to fall on a day that was a day in the calendar that, that celebrated another feast, that feast is entirely superseded. In other words, there's no, there's no memorial, there's no, there's no mention. It's just, it's superseded that year by the octave of Easter. And speaking of the octave of Easter, in the Novus Ordo Mise, it is officially called simply the second Sunday of Easter, uh, or a.k.a. Divine Mercy Sunday. Right, I went on the, the bishop's website to confirm, second Sunday of Easter, and in parens, or Divine Mercy Sunday. So, you know, I mean, it's strange that an article in a Novus Ordo publication, you know, that, that services Catholic bulletins, failed to mention that Sunday now can be referred to as another name, as by the name Divine Mercy Sunday. And and once again, this, this change in name, which is not really a change, but, you know, uh, this change in reference, I guess I should say, 
doesn't represent any change in the liturgy. There's no new readings. There's no new prayers. There's nothing, uh, there's no official nod to the divine mercy in the liturgy itself, right? The official name of the feast didn't change either. You note that uh, Pope St. Paul, or Pope St. John Paul II, simply called for the divine mercy indulgence to be attached to the Sunday after Easter. And that's no nonsense. All right. Boy, we covered a lot of territory today. I, you know, I might need to go back and listen to this again myself. Because <laughs> we hit a lot of points. And, uh, but I don't like to I, I belabor points, although I do try and be, uh, as some people have said, maybe possibly a little too um, uh, complete, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Um, in any event, I, I want to take this last couple of moments together to say thank you for listening. And thank you for your questions. You can always uh, email Virgin Most Powerful and uh, ask a question, and it will get to me. And I always do my best to answer them via email. And sometimes I reference them on the program. Typically not, but sometimes I do when I think it's going to be of kind of general interest or represents a, a question that, that more than one person has answered or represents a question that maybe you've never heard before um, in any of those cases. And, and I hope that you find it interesting. And, and don't be um, hesitant to Right in if you have a question like that of your own. Uh, also, on the 17th of June, if I'm not mistaken, we have a conference coming up. Um, second most popular conference of the year. It is the Virgin Most Powerful Radio Catholic Resource Center annual men's conference. And this year, it is going to be uh, headlined by our own Jesse Romero and his beloved brother Johnny. Johnny and Jesse Romero together again, uh, live and in person here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. So it's at, uh, it's at our own chapel, which is a smaller venue. It's only a couple hundred seats. So you're going to want to go to virginmostpowerful.org, vmpr.org, and, uh, or call the office, 877-526-2151, and register in advance because it's, this is another one of those conferences. It's very popular. It sells out quickly, and we're only a couple of months away. So you want to take advantage of the opportunity to get your registration in now. It's a men's conference, $45 uh, per man, if I'm not mistaken, and $85 for a father and son. So uh, uh, don't be afraid to uh, come and, and bring your uh, son to, to listen to uh, these fine speakers at our annual Catholic men's conference. Okay, so that and, and lots of stuff going on at uh, VMPR. So if you visit the website, vmpr.org. Everything's right there on the homepage, all the stuff that's, uh, that's going on currently. You can have access to the uh, various things that we've produced, you know, audio and video. And also, uh, we would be very much obliged if you would hit that uh, big blue donate button. Uh, we, we do appreciate your prayers most of all, but we can also use your financial support probably more now than ever. So uh, thank you for uh, considering that. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.